In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Before that, I was never convinced that I could be loved by a dad. I'll just be honest with you. I never... Greg could not perform anything else to help Greg survive. He couldn't do any more circus tricks. He couldn't do all this stuff because that's who was going to do something for me because I wasn't, I wasn't lovable enough. I wasn't, and my dad showed me that. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we, we salute, salute you. you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and as you heard, I'm here with my co-host and good friend, Dale Culver. How you doing, man? I'm doing really, really good. Hey, I got to tell you, I'm really fired up about today's interview. You know, I've for years I carried a, had a 44 Magnum in my gun safe for that day. <laughs> if I ever went to Alaska, I would have my 44 Mag in case of a grizzly bear, which uh, all it would do is I figured it would make the grizzly even angrier at me. But we've got a guy on our show today that actually had the worst case scenario, man. He got attacked by a grizzly. And he lived to tell about it. And he's got a great story of how God redeemed all of that. And I'm really excited about today. I'm going to be laying on your couch over here while you podcast them in case, so I don't have a seizure. Yeah, you don't do good with blood, do you? <laughs> you don't do well with blood. That's Doing better uh, these I, days. I, I, usually blood and duct tape go hand in hand with me because I'm cutting my hands. I, about once a week, I cut my hands. Yep. In fact, we were in Indiana and we killed a couple bucks and we butchered them up and I told the guys, miracle happened. What? I go, no cuts. Two processed deer, no cuts. It's a miracle. Anyway. But I did shave my head and it's bleeding. Yep. My nose is cut, but uh, everything else is fine. Hey, you got a man word for me? Yeah, I do. Uh, you don't need to worry about guessing it. It is awakening. Oh. Because I already guessed it in my you, brain. Yes, you would have known anyways. But I think that uh, it sure would be awesome if we would have an awakening in our life before God has to get our attention. And so... Yeah. Uh, if we see us veering off course, or we have a friend that calls that out on us, uh, we should have that awakening sooner than later, because yeah. later is not so good. Well, and when I speak to guys, I mean, what I, part of what I do is I teach the Bible to them, but I want to slap them into reality. I want to wake them up, and I think we sometimes need that slap or that encouragement to wake us up out of this uh, slumber. Right. And so, no, that's a good word, man. Hey, you got a shout-out for us today? Yes, this shout-out goes out to Dr. Joe B. We're assuming you're probably Dr. Joe B. from... I know him, Matt Toon. Yeah. Are you wearing your Kiss Destroyer shirt, Joe? <laughs> Inside joke. Anyway. So, yeah, guys, thanks for those shout-outs. Uh, Joe, hook, hit us up, and we'll uh, 
We'll send you some swag, and uh, if you're out there listening to this and this has impacted you, please send us a positive review. Yeah, those reviews really help, guys. Hey, let's uh, let's not wait any longer. I want to bring my new friend on today, Greg Matthews. Greg is 52 years old. He lives in Plano, Texas. He's been married to 17 years to his beautiful wife. I'm going to hope I get this right. Rhea? Rhea. Rhea. I like that. Okay, yeah, Rhea. So Greg works... Uh, for the Division of Anti-Terrorism. He's an officer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers protecting the nation's dams, hydropower plants, and intercoastal locks. He was a star on Transformers. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 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 Sorry, sorry, sorry. Anyway, um, hey, Greg is a national speaker, and he's the author of Wild Awakening, How a Raging Grizzly Healed My Wounded Heart. This is the topic of today's discussion. Greg, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show, man. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you, Jim. And uh, we were just laughing at the picture on the back of the book. I thought, this guy's face looks better than mine. And then I see in real life, I go, man, this guy's a good-looking dude. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I should go get attacked by a grizzly. Maybe it'll help my face a little bit. (laughs) Couldn't hurt. Well, I I think it was all... I think it was all part of the series of miracles that laid out. That was kind of the benefit from my wife because he had a surgeon show up that was a uh, not only a plastic surgeon but a head and neck board certified surgeon. So he tightened some things up for my wife, I guess. <laughs> get those crow's eye, get those crow's feet off the, <laughs> right. uh, the yeah. There we go. Well, you know, uh, your book uh, is so filled with miracles and so many deep thoughts. It's just a lot to unpack, and I read your book front to back, and then I went back through it, and I stole all the notes out that I'd taken, so I've really read your book twice, and so yes, sir. really, really appreciate the book, and uh, you you know, you hear of, there's several books out there on grizzly attacks, but for yours, uh, just the story behind how God redeemed it is unbelievable, but before we get into that, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about you, uh, any more of uh, your story, just some context so they get to know you a little bit better. Absolutely. Once again, thanks for uh, having me on. Um, so I come from a family that is basically, uh, they've all served in the military of some sort, um, been involved in law enforcement, and I didn't, uh, I didn't really want to be a law enforcement officer, so I chose a different pursuit. Uh, at 17, I became a firefighter. Mm. Uh, served in the U.S. Air Force as a firefighter, and then went on from there to do 21 years in the fire service and did all the specialty rescue stuff. Um, worked at the World Trade Center for, mm-hmm. for three and a half mm-hmm. weeks. And uh, from there, that put me on another kind of a, a shift in my uh, careers. I went on to go get all my certifications and all the schooling for anti-terrorism and counterterrorism, and then went on to become uh, one of the Homeland Security Managers for the city of San Diego. And then also the, uh, I went on to be the anti-terrorism officer for headquarters, Navy region Southwest, which is pretty much the largest Naval footprint down there on the Southwest coast of the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the stuff is, is good stuff, but a lot of the stuff I did, uh, from some of the wounds and brokenness that I had in my life. So it's kind of, uh, embarrassing sometimes to talk about some of the things I've done. I was a helicopter rescue pilot, um, Fugitive recovery agent. Uh, I started National Emergency Service Systems in the jungles of uh, Uganda and East Africa. Um, like I said, a lot of good things for people, but uh, a lot of the stuff I was doing to try and prove myself as a man and 
trying to prove my worth to my dad. Mm. So, Yeah, I think a lot of us can relate to that, man. Well, before we get into the attack, I want to go back and look at the subtitle of your book because the subtitle, you must have wrestled with that subtitle. Uh, your subtitle is How a Raging Grizzly Healed My Wounded Heart. And about the book, you wrote this. There's no greater pursuit in man's life than to establish his identity. The world says pursue, conquer, and achieve, and yet so many men are still empty. I have been to the mountaintop as a man, and yet I still felt something at my very core was missing. So here's my question, Greg. What was missing? And better yet, how do most men miss how do, how do most men miss the mark as they pursue those above mentioned things that you talked about? Wow, you don't play around, Jim. You go right for the jugular, huh? Well, not that's as a, not that, as vicious as a mama grizzly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that that is a great question. It's at the core of my book, Wild Awakening. Um, you know, as I kind of told you, the laundry list of things that I've done in my life. Um, the way that I was able to finally come to grips of who I was was, I finally figured out the mind and the body kind of pursue. And it's a God-given pursuit, pursue uh, what I call heroism. It's those pursuit of getting things done to show the world, look at me, I'm mm. a man. Mm. And I think that predominantly was what I was pursuing as a man, trying to prove, uh, you know, my dad ended up leaving when I was uh, eight years old. And, and it was very traumatic to me. And I lost my foundation of who I was as a person and on into adulthood, into manhood. And so recognizing the example that he set in law enforcement and military, I thought pursuing those type of things was what wasn't made a man. And what I found out after the grizzly attack is that I had never, ever really engaged my heart in those deep, intimate relationships with God, my wife, my kids, and those I cared about. Everything that I had done was all surface, like you know, hanging medals or shining something on the outside. Hmm. And I realized that I had never gauged on what really made a man. And that was what was inside. How did, how well did I love, how well did I reach out to, to others and show them who Greg was inside? And frankly, I just couldn't get past the shame and I couldn't get past, um, the fact that I felt like I was unworthy of, of love, to be honest. Well, <clears throat> That's really interesting, man. So you you just said something I thought was really interesting. You said we pursue shining metals to hang on our chest on the outside. So we as I, I think you're right. I think our default as men is to identify with our career or our accomplishments. Uh, you wrote something else, and I'm going to quote you here. You said the heart is complicated, and many of us have been have huge wounds wounds that stand in the way. Wounds we would much rather avoid, yet until we press through the pain, we will never experience deeply loving, uh, a, a deeply loving God, loving others, and loving ourselves. We will remain a well, well, this is important, we will remain a well-polished shell of a man, never engaging our heart and never fully fulfilling our created purpose of loving deeply. And you continue to go on and talk about this this journey, this 18-inch journey. So yes. talk to us about the well-polished shell of a man and what you would call the 18-inch journey. 
So the um, the polishing of a man is the pursuit of what comes so natural to our as men into our minds is that we must prove ourselves to the world. This is how we establish who are we are as a man. This is how we establish our manhood. And when you look at the fact that the outside is what people see, but yet I call it like David said, inside is like dead man's bones. Mm -hmm. One, we've, we've just neglected it because of the fact that it's something that there's pain could be very easily assimilated to less than or being weak, which doesn't in this world identify you as a man. Correct. But the, the lie about it is you're, you're pursuing these things and it's a moving target. You are, you, you accomplish something, you get the accolades and then it moves. You've got to do something better. You've got to, you've got to reach out and do something different because that does not settle in your heart. It does not fill that huge hole in the center of your chest that you need to feel true purpose, true identity. And it only comes with engaging the heart, but in order to engage the heart, that means you have to talk about, I tell people before, give me a terrorist attack, give me a structure fire, give me a, some dangerous fugitive, but don't make me talk about what hurts inside. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's no, absolutely. I think with guys, we avoid that like the plague. We, exactly. We, we just, I think there's a movement today towards men being more open and transparent as we look to the generations above us. There's a reason they called it the silent generation in the same sentence. They call them the greatest generation. They were great, but they didn't talk about it. There was no, there was nothing there. And so I I think you're right, man, this is a moving target. And so I want to dial in this target and talk about you a little bit on page 90 of your book. You wrote this and you're going back to 2001. So we're going back quite Mm -hmm. a ways. But you, and this is six years after you're you're divorced to Mary Jo. You're yes. living in uh, Lake Stevens, Washington, which is about three and a half hours from where we live right now in McMinnville, Oregon. And you wrote this, and this this really speaks to this shining metal on the chest type of thing. You said this quote: "From the outside, it appears as if everything in my life was just fine. <laughs> on the inside, though, I was broken." I did not want to face my disappointments and pain. And there are a lot of guys listening to this podcast right now that are shining on the outside. They've got a beautiful wife. They've got a wonderful home. They've got a great career and a nice new uh, American-made truck. They're driving, Mm. very unlike my Toyota Tundra. (laughs) (laughs) But they are broken. So are, are you talking about here, Greg, are you talking about the brokenness from your parents' divorce, your DUI, incident or your divorce of your first wife what what are you talking about when you talk about brokenness and and what is the danger for a man when he refuses to address his brokenness that's a great question so all of the above on those things but there is um and i'm not saying that everyone has this level of wounding um as a man Uh uh-huh but but at eight years old i watched my dad say that he was leaving the home and i watched him drive away and I wasn't sure if I was ever going to see him again. I didn't know what was going on. I was completely devastated. I lost all sense of my compass of who I was. He was my everything and my hero. And from that moment on, 
I figured if God or if my dad is mad at me and then I've done something so wrong that he's leaving, that God must be mad at me. And then on top of that, I would never, I call these heart ties. Hmm. I will never allow someone to be close enough to me again to ever hurt me like that again. And that was, I, I can remember from that day forward. And then I went forward to say, I will do everything in my power to win my dad's love back because I felt as he drove away that he didn't love me anymore, my dad. And so those wounds started off, one, my pursuit of achievements, shiny medals, but two, it also brought a, uh, a soul tie and a heart tie to shame, to believing I was unworthy, and that's what I had inside. So it was... I continued to live in that um, shame, and I and and that actually it hollowed me out. I was never able to get past it because I didn't want to engage the heart, because heart is where pain was, and that's what caused me to not want to ever be a dad, mm-hmm. um, because I knew that sons and dads that's where pain exists, and I'm not going there, and so I was. Everything I could never ever become the man that I wanted to be until I was willing to engage those wounds in my life, and it took a grizzly bringing to a point of showing me what is real and what's important to get me to that point, Jim. You know, it's really interesting because I know that you've read Eldridge's book Wild at Heart because yes. he wrote your cover endorsement, and he said because because Eldridge talks about every man, the three core purposes of a man are battle to fight adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. But then when you get up page 57 on his book, he transitions into this thing called the wound. And so when Eldridge endorsed your book, he wrote this, quote, this is a powerful story about the healing every man needs. And so uh, I, I know our guys are going, come on, Ramos, come on, hurry up, hurry up. Let's let's transition to that moment uh, when, uh, let's talk about the attack but let's let's talk about leading up to the attack. For me personally, I don't have a bucket list, but there are certain things I do want to accomplish before I die. One of them is I want to kill a caribou on the tundra of Alaska. And so when I picked up your book and I saw the cover, I thought, oh man, I'm going to resonate with this guy. And I do. But let's talk about the time frame because there's quite a time frame, I think a couple of years leading up to this trip. Can you kind of walk us through the, the series of events with your brother and, and leading up to this event? Sure. So my brother is retired out of the Air Force, out of Anchorage, and um, us growing up, we've always long. My dad, you know, he took us on week-long trips into the Sierras, trout fishing, and we learned how to hunt, hunting jackrabbits out in the Mojave Desert and all this kind of stuff. So we always had a desire either go to Africa or go to Alaska with the boys and prove ourselves out on the frontier. And, you know, it's not, you know, as well as I know, being a hunter, it's not about the kill. No. But... We're living it from the point we decide to go. We're living it through the preparedness, through testing our gear, through reloading, to shooting our arrows, all that different stuff, buying the equipment. So, yes, you're right. Two years um, from my brother, he lives up there, and he invited me on this trip. And I said, absolutely. So for two years, we planned it, uh, purchased gear, tested gear, made our maps, did, did everything we need to do to, um, to bring this thing to a basically a 10-day hunt. He had a, um, a good-sized jet boat, and we were 14 miles in by boat and about just a little less than two miles packed into uh, an area of Alaska when 
when this happened. So now you're hunting moose, correct? Yes. Okay. Now, <clears throat> regarding the attack on page 104, you said something, because I've always been told, hey, the, the most dangerous animal in the world is a grizzly and a man between the grizzly and the cubs. But that's not mm -hmm. what happened with you. There was no. a grizzly, and sh and here's the the thing that's the, the the Alaskan grizzly. A male can grow to fifteen to seventeen hundred pounds. A female about eleven mm hundred. -hmm. So I'm guessing this is a thousand pound animal. But you said in your book, and I, I want you to walk me through this because this is horrifying. That she was hunting you, that you were being yes. hunted. How do you, how yes. do you know this? Talk to me about this. So, so that was confirmed by, you know, when, when the flatlander comes up to hunt in Alaska, if something goes wrong, it's, it's their fault until proven otherwise. And Alaska Correct. state troopers, Alaska fish and game, federal biologists, when they took my brother out there and found, um, the grizzly and we showed them our spike camp and we showed them everything that we did, they're like, okay, well, we recognize it something went wrong here and we explained to him or my brother explained to him what we did and the calling and everything that we did. They said with the two 300 pound sub adult cubs and mama, um, that she was actually, she wasn't nursing. They were just getting ready to transition is what they believe. And that we actually called her in. She was teaching. We them. were doing, yeah, we were doing also, um, wounded calf calls. Oh. So, yeah. So, so she wasn't imagine. she wasn't a man eater. She was going after uh, what she believed was an injured animal. Yes, and 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 that says something about my brother's ability to call, right? I mean, obviously, if if she's hearing the dinner bell and coming yeah. down to within thirty five yards at that point when I saw her, um, I guess we did our job, convinced her anyway. Well, hey, I'll tell you what. I want you to walk us through the day of the attack. But before you do, I just need to read a couple quotes from your book because it gets real here. It gets real graphic. And uh, this is probably where Dale needs to lay down and take a nap before he has a seizure and drops on me. But <laughs> on page 106, so at one point you end up, I'm going to let you tell the story, but you did shoot at this animal as she yeah. charged you. So I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to read the quote. The shot ha must have hit her. The grizzly didn't even slow down. The rampaging monster leapt at my face, her mouth open, exposing her black tongue. I thought, man, the detail of you remembering that. Her black tongue and white fangs, daggers efficiently designed for their purpose, to bite, tear, and destroy, to kill. Mm. And then in another point in the book, at page 114, you say, razor-sharp fangs plunge into my side and lift my feet into the air. The pain is excruciating. I'm slammed to the ground, but those daggers don't loosen their grips. grip. I'm dragged over dead limbs, leaves, and dirt. My fingers dig trenches in the soil, but my efforts fail to halt her deadly progress. A river of red fills one of the furrows in the dirt behind me. It's blood, my blood. So take me back to an hour before the attack. What's happening? What's going on? And then let's let's walk through the attack. So uh, an hour prior to this, um, just to paint the picture, we're in one of probably the, your typical pristine Alaskan Valley, two 5,000-foot ridgelines either side, 
there's a creek in the center. The leaves are beginning to change. There's a, we come across a beaver dam, which creates a lake. I mean, it's just, it's pristine. We're coming up the right side of this valley, slowly moving along, trying to not make any noise. Um, we see across through binoculars, we find a five foot up in the air on this tree, a rub. We end up going over there. The rub is basically, it's stripped this about five feet up, about three feet up. The tree is completely white. Bark is gone. And down on the bottom is, is bloody felt. So we are right in the midst of where a bull moose was. And so my heart's starting to race. We're getting excited. So we move back to the edge of the valley, move in about just under two miles and spot a knoll um, right in the center of the valley. And so we're going to slowly and methodically, which it took about an hour to get out into the back into the middle because we wanted to make sure that if this was the spot we were going to hunt, that there was no movement on our part that would alert something. And so at this point, an hour into it, we, we have a discussion between him and I. Typically with moose, they'll hang up in certain tree line areas. And so the decision is made to move me forward and to move him back so that when he calls this moose in, that I have uh, a better opportunity for a good shot and I'm hunting with a bow. <laughs> okay. So you're, so you have a bow, you're getting set up for the shot. Your brother's behind you calling. What mm -hmm. happens next? For some reason you had a rifle with you though. I, I did. And that goes back to, um, there was three piles of scat on the shoreline where we put the boat up. And from the day before those were brand new. And so I had got about 50 yards walking with my brother after we packed up to go in. And I rethought that whole thing. And I turned around and I grabbed the rifle, um, 300 Winchester Magnum. Uh, two, they were, I reloaded them. They were 200 grain Nosler partition. I mean, these, these were built to yeah. kill. And I just thought, hey, if nothing else, I got a black bear tag. If it doesn't work without the, you know, with the bow, then maybe we can hike up the ridge line because we had seen a, um, a black bear there the other day. So I had brought the rifle. I'm sitting up. I'm camouflaged. I've put up some some brush, fully camouflaged with my face and everything. And I've got uh, the rifle next to me. I'm glassing both ridge lines. I'm glassing, you know, how you look through the trees. You yep. know, you're actually looking at a whole stand of trees, but you're actually looking through the trees for any movement. Uh, we've been doing that for about, I think it's about three hours or going into the third hour now. I put the, the binoculars down. I'm just looking out and I catch some movement out of my periphery to my left. Um, at that point, I can feel my heart racing again. My, my respirations are changing. And I'm one of those guys, I don't look at the target until I'm drawn, fully drawn, or I got my rifle set because I just got this feeling that they can sense when you look at them. Yeah. And yeah. so... I, I go to draw the bow back and I swing and before me, there's a, a, a trail that one goes down the side of the knoll to my left to where my brother is. The other one comes across, which is the one I want them on because it's a 25 yard broadside shot on that trail. When I swing the bow over, um, I'm sure all the blood drained from my face when I saw what I was looking at because they're standing on its, its back legs was a eight and a half foot approximately 600 pound grizzly with two sub-adult uh, grizzly cubs kind of moving around behind her. Uh, at that point, literally, I wanted to run. That was my first thought. Uh, I was able to overcome that. 
Uh, my second thought was um, hiding because there was a big stump in front of me. I thought I, at this point I could get really, really small and tuck myself under that log. Um, but then I realized if, uh, if the bear ended up taking that other trail, it hadn't spotted me yet, but if it had taken that other trail, um, it would have come up on my brother. My brother would have been unaware and basically he would have been surprised and, and attacked possibly by that grizzly. So I made the decision to engage. Um, I had some options. Um, being my real uh, first time um, big game hunting in Alaska, I had, I did have bear spray. Um, I did have a 357 Magnum. I had the bow and I had the, um, the 300 Winchester. I didn't trust for whatever reason, I didn't trust the bear spray. I knew that the, I had the, the pistol more for wolves because I think that's more the encounters with humans is more with wolves and humans in Alaska. Mm. So my only real option was the 300 wind mag. So I grabbed that. I low crawled around a tree, came up, uh, stood up, stood up on my tiptoes, brought the rifle up. I was shaking so bad. I couldn't dial the, the magnification back on my scope. So I just basically held it to my hip and, Still hadn't spotted me, but as soon as I said, whoa, bear, that thing's head swung like lightning, locked onto me. It dropped down to all fours. Uh, I saw the head begin to lower. I saw the ears fold back, that lip curl over its jaw, and then all the hair stood up on its back and it started charging me. Um, you tell me when you want me to kind of stop here. You want to end. Well, when inject. I read the book, I thought, why didn't he shoot her when she was standing? But you just answered the question. So, so she charges you. You're how at, at this point you're 30 yards from her. It's about 30 to 35 yards. She's at the confluence of those two trails. And so, uh, yeah, she drops down to all fours and is charging me. And we're on this, it's like, they call it tundra moss. It's like being on a trampoline. There, uh, I can see it. Go it goes into slow motion with each grab down by her her paws to propel her forward. I can see the moss flying up in the distance, and I'm convinced that there's going to be a false charge at this point. Yeah. So she's she's closing the distance at 20 yards. She's not slowing down. If nothing, she's gaining speed. At about 10 yards, I'm thinking this is where she's going to slide. Give me a couple of woofs. You know, make her presence say, get out of here and we'll go our separate ways, but it doesn't stop. Um, at about, it's about 12 feet. I've got the gun at my hip, got the safety off. I fire the 300 wind mag right in its face and it doesn't do anything. It lunges at me with its mouth open. The only thing I have is the rifle itself. So I just extend it almost like a bayonet and the, and the rifle barrel goes into the bear's mouth. The rifle comes back, slams me in the head right at the same moment that the bear lowers its head and hits me in the chest. And then we slide, uh, comes over the top of me. I'm trying to, to get my breath, trying to figure out what I'm going to do at this point when two 12 to 14 inch paws land right on my shoulders and I'm on my back and the first bite is to my face. Okay. I'm going to stop right there. <clears throat> so you're, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. We're going to come right back. It's a teasing you boys. Here we go. <laughs> the Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with the mission to inspire men towards becoming their best version and changing their world. 
Every Man in the Arena Matters. Our Men in the Arena closed Facebook forum for men is a great way to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today. Because of the passion to see men get out of the bleachers and into the arena, Jim wants to offer some powerful resources to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org. Give us your email and we'll send you a free PDF version of the field guide. It's Jim's 365-day bathroom book for men. It's the study of manly words in the Bible, illustrated with great stories. This is also a great resource for all our arena men. We'll also add you to our weekly equipping blast, including Jim's personal blog, prayer requests, and weekly boots-on-the-ground mission. Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those anonymous voices in the bleachers pleading for you to enter the fight? Because when you get it, everyone wins. Now, back to our episode. Okay, so I want to stop right there because your brother at this point has... Okay, first of all, are bears as fast as they say? Absolutely. I mean, 30 yards, she must have closed the gap back in a second, two seconds. Yeah, lightning fast. It was, you know, I'm articulating this in words, but it is happening lightning fast, even though it's going into slow motion because it's, it's just one of those things you realize that that you possibly are going to be dead at the end of this event. So your brother is how far from you? He's a, he's about 50 to 60 yards behind me back at the, the front portion or the back portion of the knoll. So he doesn't so, realize that you've literally just saved his life. But now he's going to come to save, try to save your life. So at this isn't in your book, I don't think. He hears the shot. What's he thinking now? Well, he's thinking that he doesn't know why he's hearing a shot because I know I was hunting with a bow. He actually heard um, "woe bear," <laughs> and so he is. You got to understand where we're hunting. Moose hunting is just take the most horrendous topography. I'm talking um, holes, mud trees branches it's like a swamp and so he's in waders trying to make his way up to where i am and that's where basically the the two minutes of yeah the attack took place so the attack was a total of okay i didn't get that in your book but i'm so engaged in the book when i'm reading it i didn't catch the time frame so so you undergo a two-minute attack the bear at this point is on top of you and she has now grabbed a hold of your head. Yeah, well, my yeah. Well, the bear had um, basically how it, it it went is the first bite tore a tennis ball sized hole in my neck. Oh. The top of the teeth went through my cheek, through my gums, and through my jaw. And then when it bit down, it split my face into a V. So that's that's not a smile line right there. That is oh, that's where a my, cut. That's where my. But that's another miracle. The Lord put it right in my smile line, so you you really can't even tell. Yeah, yeah, you can't tell. No, it's so. Here I am. My face is split in a V. I have a hole in my my neck, and you know that at that point it went to reposition. I felt a gush of blood, so I pushed my chin down onto my chest to try and control the bleeding, which exposed the back of my head, and that's when it took the whole back of my head and bit down into my temples and basically put my head into what felt like a vice. 
And then so at that point, just feeling the pressure and there's nothing brave going on here. I am just trying to survive something that is just being attacked by a monster. So I start punching the nose of this thing as the nose is hanging out here. I just start punching the nose. And then about the fourth punch, that's when it grabs my arm, raises up and does the violent head shake and basically throws and rolls me. And at this point, I can't see. So I'm on my butt kind of spinning around trying to listen to where it might be. And then all of a sudden, I heard the growl at the back of my head again. It took my head in the back of its mouth again. And uh, so at that point, it released. I, I got into survival mode. I thought the only way I could survive was getting on my belly and interlacing my fingers over my neck, my C-spine. And spreading my legs. The only thing I could think of was don't let it turn me back over onto my back. And so what happened next? <laughs> so it it so I'm on my belly. I literally in that position, it comes up over the top of me. I can hear it breathing over the top of me. It reaches one of its paws with the claws underneath my ribs and tries to roll me. I roll right back over onto my belly and back into position. It then comes right over the top of me, sinks its teeth down through my jacket, and lifts me up by my lat completely off the ground, and then drops me. Um, God, thank God I was able to get right back in that position, but then it got, I just assume it got really pissed because it moved more up towards my head, and that's when I felt its paw come down and kind of one, like it was... I don't know, trying to break my head, but it, it basically hooked above my ear, my scalp when it came down and then just raked across the back of my head. And that's where it degloved the whole back of my scalp. Oh, um, so, and I just heard it sound like, you know, like fingers, nails on a chalkboard. It just dug down into my skull. And so it just laid my whole scalp over, um, that hurt a lot. <laughs> so at this, so this is in 15. So now we're sitting at, I keep doing these little interjections cause I want our guys to kind of go, you're a jerk Ramos. No worries. So at this point, this is five, four years ago. Have you ever like went back and watched like a movie called the Revenant and seen that grizzly oh, attack? Is that something I, that you I, can handle? I, I watched it the first three days I was home. And this is um, just trying to take, and you can imagine how much there is to unpack with yeah. potentially a lot of PTSD with what God did in showing up and now me facing who I used to be yeah. and now who I've become. I watch, every time I told the story, I looked in people's eyes and they, I could not see that they, how could they understand what I had been through? So it may sound kind of morbid, but the only way that I could feel any comfort to know what I had been through. I watched that just that scene probably 15 or 20 times over and over. I was wondering. Yeah. So at this point you're well, at some point you already said you were blind, but at some point during this two minute attack, you were blind and deaf. Yes. So, so I don't know you, you can go back through and walk us through that part of the story. But at some point, you're laying in a pool of your own blood. You're blind and deaf. But in the midst of this storm, there was a peace because in the midst of the attack, 
you write that God spoke to you. Can you walk us Absolutely. through that, and what did God say in the midst of that? Well, I won't just tell you what he spoke. I'll tell you what he did. <laughs> um, I, was, I was sitting there on that final end of things um, when the thing was getting the worst, uh, as far as at least what I was hearing. Um, he came in. I felt him come in beside me as I'm on my, now on my butt trying to spin around, can't see to locate where the bear is. And people would say, well, you were going into shock. Yes, I was going into shock. But my, I realized that my ears had been ringing the whole time, that I wasn't really able to hear the full audio of the bear and its viciousness. And not only what it was it that, I wasn't able to see it all. And I will tell you that I've never had a dream about the attack. God protected my wow. eyes and my ears. In my heart. So, but the other thing is he, yeah, he came from behind me basically. And I felt like he was enshrouding me. And he basically said, Greg, I am not done with you yet. You are wow. my son and I, I, and I need you to fight. And at that point I had, I was kind of tired. Um, and I was, had gone through all of that. And at this point, I think it was perfect timing because I, I think I had realized or figured that I was probably going to die and, and, and never see my family again. Wow. I, I just had a thought, Greg. So I read that part in your book where God spoke to you. Uh, it reminds me of a verse, 1 Peter uh, 5, 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. And so it's a picture of God kind of cuffing you in his hands. Yes. You said that God said to you, I need you to fight. And when you speak to men about this event, do you ever ask the question, how many men are out there right now and you've given up and God is wanting you to fight? Is that? Do you find that as a, a something that pulls on the heartstrings of men? Absolutely, because they do want to fight, because in the pursuit of their pursuing manhood, they have found emptiness yes. they have found things that they thought were going to fulfill them and it's not that they don't want to fight but they don't know how to engage the heart because the difference you know i was talking about the head and the body to the heart the head rises heroism that's the easy part the heart rises courage and courage is fanned with engaging in that fear of am i less than all my, um, all the stuff that goes into being um, vulnerable, the shame, the guilt, all those things, and they don't realize that those are their greatest weapons of becoming the man that they are intended to be by God. Yes. Does that make sense to you? I mean, oh, not totally. until I engaged those areas, not until I poured into those areas, was I able to become a full man and not just a shell. Well, and I think you talk about the shell thing as well. I think there are a lot of men out there who are listening to this podcast even today who have been beaten down by their choices and by life. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're, they have kids that don't talk to them. They've got a wife who's divorced them. They've just feel lost and they're, they're trying to hold this veneer. They're mm -hmm. trying to keep the shell together, but they're not fighting to restore themselves to a whole man, to a complete man. And I think that resonates as well because we have the shiny metal guy out there, 
But we also have this guy, you know, 50% of marriages are into in divorce. And of those divorces, 50% of kids won't see that dad for a year. So you have a lot of these men out there who have refused to fight. They've let life beat them down. I would Your message to me resonates and encourages them. Well, and I, I thank you. You put that very, very well. Um, what I will tell you is I don't think they've given up. Mm. I don't think that they've been shown the real path of how they can engage and fight. Ooh, yes. I think that they need, they need to look at this battle because this is where I believe that our families are falling apart in this country because men do not know what, one, their responsibility is and the, and the power that they've been given to battle in this arena of the heart. This heart area is key and core and the, and the battlefield is riddled with heroes who have delved into the head, who have delved into the body and have done these really special things. And there's nothing wrong with it, but that is not the foundation. The foundation is engaging the heart, getting through the shame, getting through all the wounds. And it comes with engaging with other men and being, I call it that 60 seconds of courage where you're able to throw your crap in the, out there in front of somebody that has been basically your prison and there is freedom beyond that. And what happens is your heart begins to understand how it can love and grow and inspires you to even greater things that you've done on the heroism side, sir. That is so good, man. Uh, 60 seconds of courage. I didn't tell you this earlier in our pre-interview, but uh, I had a pretty severe back injury working out. It led to back surgery. And there was a chiropractor in town who said, hey, I'll treat you for free. And just try to mm. fix this. Well, in the process, I realized I really like this guy. And so as we moved through the process, I said, hey, I'd like to have coffee with you. So we had coffee. And I remember dumping the 60 seconds of courage on him and going, I really like you. And here's what I really struggle with. And how about mm. you? And he goes, oh, man, I struggle with the same thing. Today, he's on my board of directors. And his role on the board is the friend. So he's the 60-second friend. And so I really believe in the 60 seconds of courage. And uh, not only to have a friend that you can dump crap on, but yes. to have a friend who has your back. And in this story, it's your brother. It is. So what happens? So what happens? Give me the last 45 seconds of the attack and then tell me about your brother coming through the bog with his waders on. Or his hip, <laughs> was he wearing hip boots or waders? No, he was full-blown waders. Oh, that's not – hey, I'm a duck hunter. It's not easy to move in those bad boys. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> So the, that last 45 seconds, I will tell you that I had obviously my face completely ripped open. My, I'm, I'm gushing blood out of my neck. I've had the bear take my head into its mouth twice and then sink its teeth into my back oh, and basically deglove my scalp. So I'm not looking too hot right now. <laughs> um, when, my, when my brother does finally get up there, I'm on my back. I'm pretty much contemplating, okay, am I going to die or am I going to listen to what the Lord told me to do to fight? But the bear has my leg in its mouth. Oh, gosh. My brother my brother runs up to it, gets close. The bear is in between uh, myself and him. So he knows I, I, I loaded some hot rounds, those, those <laughs> 300 Winchester Magnum. So he's not going to shoot that thing because there's a potential that round will go through it. He doesn't want to shoot me. And so God bless him. He is a brave man. 
So each time he runs up and, and his idea is he's going to get close enough to become a bigger threat than I was. And then the bear would charge him and that he would fire on the bear. So each time the bear would turn with my leg still in its mouth as he came up and he said the whole bear's head was covered in my blood. Oh. Finally, he got close enough where the bear dropped my leg, rose up and began to walk towards him in a very fast manner he shot it right in the chest and then it reached out to try and bite him in the face and he shot it right in the neck so we've got three rounds in this thing and it dropped to all fours he said the bear turned and looked at me which i was just a lump of meat at that point and uh looked at my brother and still didn't kill it but it it ran off into the adjacent tree line about 20 or 30 yards away from us and just started thrashing around so um, so we now we have a wounded grizzly. Well, and what we haven't spoken about so far in this interview is that the, your first round. Now, now I shoot a hundred and fifty four grain seven millimeter Weatherby mag, mm. so that thing's going thirty one hundred feet per second. But when you're talking a three hundred wind mag, you're talking a two hundred grain bullet traveling. I'm going to guess twenty nine hundred feet per second. That's about right. Yes, sir. That is going to do some serious damage, and your first shot blew out the lower jaw, which saved your life. Right? <laughs> yeah, that is. You know, I hate to ruin it for your readers. <laughs> I mean, there's a Spoiler there's a alert. whole bunch of miracles here, but when the biologists came out and fishing game and everything, and they picked up that massive hair or head of grizz that grizzly, and my brother was right there. Um, the right side of the mandible collapsed in an L in his hand, and then when he opened the mouth, the left front canine had folded down, and he said the biologist laughed, and he said, "Well, what are you laughing about?" He says, "Well." there's a bullet that struck the bear's jaw and this canine. And that if that hadn't happened, we'd have had a, we'd have been out here on a body recovery for your brother. Oh. So at this point now, the bear is mortally wounded. You don't know yes. this. You don't know this, but the bear is no longer a visible threat. You're laying, we can hear it. You can hear it. The cubs yes. are long gone. I'm assuming long gone. You're, you're in a pool of blood. Now, now we've got another issue and you talk about this in your book. You've got a battle between your head and your body. That's beginning the, a whole nether battle that you didn't, ex didn't think about, which is the battle between psychogenic and hypovolemic shock. Can you walk us through yes. those two and what's happens next? So psychogenic is usually caused by some type of fear that you've been exposed to. It's usually associated with uh, fainting. Hypovolemic shock is the loss of um, being a firefighter, so they've ingrained this in our head. It's pumps, fluid, um, and when you have the pump and pipes and fluid and you lose that fluid, you don't have enough blood that's going to the heart, to the lungs, to the brain to be able to, one, to think, and two, to even have any power to rescue yourself and and i was going through both at that point sir and so you're how far from your spike camp um we are about six to seven miles by boat and then almost two miles in so um but the spike camp is not where i need to get to i need to get to emergency care so it's a total of 14 miles just to the boat launch and then another probably six to eight miles by dirt road 
to the town of Sadatna to get to the hospital. So we're way out. So you've got a two-mile walk. Mm-hmm. Are you wearing waders? No, sir. So you're you're but you've been but you you're wearing grizzly blood. You're just you're 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 in sh- near shock. You've been attacked by a grizzly. The back of your head is ripped off. You've got a baseball sized hole in your throat. You've got yes, you're just and your brother's here with you and he's wearing waders. So he's not the most mobile guy in the world. How how what happened the next? I mean, did God? I mean, I I'm not. I don't want to spoil it because I know what the book says, but. Tell us how God intervened to get you back to the beach. So um, basically what happened was when my I, I was going into shock, um, I could not lay on my side or my back because all the blood and mucus and everything was running into my lungs. So when my brother finally got to me, um, I was on all fours on my knees and my hands. And he said, we've got to get out of here. That thing is still alive. And the only words I could speak was, um, I think I'm dying. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, no, you're not dying. Tell me what to do. And I just, it started echoing like he was talking into a tin can. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And then once again, the Lord said, you are my son. I'm not done with you. I need you to fight. And then uh, he gave me a vision of my family calling to me. And uh, especially my daughter saying, Daddy, if you if you want to come home to us, you need to fight. And so um, my brother, I could hear him saying, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And, and then the Lord just brought clarity to my mind. I mean, I've, I've treated thousands of trauma patients from airplane crashes, car crashes, train boats. It doesn't matter. I never had to treat myself, though. And so. I had him get in front of me and I said, I'm going to rise up and you describe the injuries to me because I can't see and I'll tell you how to, to fix them. And so that's what we did. I just explained and he gave me a play by play of every injury on my body and I showed him how to treat it. And the biggest thing was we needed to stop the bleeding. So you get that taken care of and then you start walking back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we come up with a plan. He wants to carry me. And um, but with the the bear still being alive and us using our common sense uh, for a second attack possibility, he basically watch walks about. I want to say it's about ten or fifteen yards behind me, looking at checking our six and keeping track of our six uh, with the rifle. We should, we planned it, but we both shot the same ammunition. So he grabbed all my ammo out of my rifle. So he had a lot of ammo. I would recommend that you guys be consistent with your. If you're hunting in a group and you get in a situation like this, that you all shoot the same ammunition if possible. But um, so he's watching my six and I just basically stumble and crawl and walk um, the two miles back to the boat. Twice I collapse, unwilling to even get up. And my brother just rushes down to me and literally raises his hand in the air and begins to pray over me. And, And God gives me a new sense of energy to walk the next time until I, I basically collapse and give up again. And, and that was kind of just a series until I got back to the boat. Well, now, now you're at the boat, you're still seven miles to spike camp and another seven miles to a hospital. Yeah. And it's, it's starting to get, um, dark It's starting to cool off and there's, um, 
probably one foot to foot and a half white caps on the water. And I'm already going into hypothermia too. And, you know, it's maybe I would have gotten the boat, but I knew everything and it sucked. Everything I knew was going to happen. I knew ahead of time and I was going through it and I'm like, oh, so this is what life and death hypothermia feels like, or this way like feels to, you know, to almost bleed to death. So I'm down there, my jaws locked up, my arms are locked up. I can barely move. Um, luckily I, I put together a full trauma kit. So my brother went back and grabbed all the jackets and the trauma kit. Um, we rebandaged wounds on my neck, controlled the bleeding, showed him how to sling and swath my, my arm. And at that point I told him, he said, well, let's get you in the boat. I said, I will never survive a boat ride back to get out. So at this, at this point, something miraculous, a lot of miraculous events happening here. First, first, I want you to tell us about the fishermen, but then Mm -hmm. in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verse two, it says, and some having entertained angels without knowing it, it it appears to me, and I'm not sure if you think this, but you also had a, a literal angel and you don't come across as a hyper Pentecostal guy. You go to fellowship Bible church in Texas, right? Right. Well, so, I go to yeah, Chase Oaks. It's it's non-denominational. Okay, basically. but I mean, if it's a it's a church gene founded, I know the kind of church it right. is. Right, and so it's fundamental. Yeah, exactly. So you have an angel experience uh, along with the three fishermen. Can you tell us about the three fishermen and the angel? I'm calling this guy an angel. I don't know what else to call it. You tell me. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, I'll talk about that. So. <laughs> At, at, at the moment that, because I won't survive the boat ride out, we decide we're going to leave me on the shoreline with my rifle while my brother's going to beat feet up to make a phone call. That wasn't my first choice. I didn't, I wanted to be far away from that grizzly. But so as he's getting ready to start up the boat, all of a sudden he comes running like a madman up the shoreline, screaming, waving his hands, convinced that he heard something out on the water. Uh, he comes by back to me, his head's hung down. He says, I know I heard something and heads back to the boat. Within about probably five minutes, we hear a boat coming in to where we were at. And then all of a sudden a boat pulls up with three fishermen. And of course, everyone knows God loves fishermen. (laughs) So God sent three fishermen and my brother was able to, we had all of our topographic max plasticized with all of our Latin long written and grease pencil on there. So we're able to give that to them um, and let them know exactly where we were at and let them know exactly where cell phone service started back up river. And so they were off from there and going to, um, uh, to get cell service and make the call, which they successfully did um, on their way back. They came in and um, they helped build a signal fire and then on top of that, um, drain some gasoline. We all came up with a plan to drain some gasoline off the boat and be able to start the fire there for the signal fire. And then what's awesome is once they were doing that, all of a sudden somebody else pulled up and I'm laying there. Of course, I'm in and out of uh, just being uh, shocky. And all of a sudden, a man shows up that says, that he is, he works up at the emergency room, up at the hospital. I don't know where he came from, but he lives around there. That he heard the call go out over dispatch, and he made his way there. And it, to me, I even said it to him. I said, "Man, you're like an angel." It was just unbelievable 
that how God articulated it just <laughs> before that I was never convinced that I could be loved by a dad. I'll just be honest with you. I never Greg could not perform anything else to help Greg survive. He couldn't do any more circus tricks. He couldn't do all this stuff because that's who was going to do something for me. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't lovable enough. I wasn't. And my dad showed me that. And so when God showed up and was doing all these things, when Greg couldn't do anything, even during that whole time, he began to re reshape my heart. Wow. So you end up getting to the hospital. You're yes, you're ripped to shreds, and you the the doctor on call. T- <laughs> tell us about the doctor on call, and then tell us about the visitation you had in the hospital. So um, they fly us out. Basically, we were able to get the signal fire going as soon as we heard the wop 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 of the helicopter. Swooped in. My brother was so proud because I walked him through. Basically, they didn't have anything to do left on me except for get me to hospital. And so they just quickly loaded me up. When we got to the hospital, there was two guys that came up to me and said, man, you are so lucky. And I'm like, oh, I feel really lucky right now. you know. <laughs> and uh, he says, I said, well, why am I lucky? He says, well, because we have a guy in here that's double board certified as a plastic surgeon and a head and neck surgeon. And then he stuck his head through in between and says, oh, yeah, this is going to be a piece of cake. I'll have you looking good, so don't worry about a thing. It was just it was just miracle after miracle after miracle. So six and a half hours of surgery, surgery 300 uh, stitches inside and out. Um, I'm laying in my room and, uh, in intensive care. And then basically what happens at that point um, – I'm groggy from obviously the anesthesia. I, I know that I have a morphine drip on board, but the fact is that God showed up in my room and continued the healing of um, an eight-year-old little little boy's heart. Mm. That wow. it just it had it had gone through so much, and not that you know he wanted. I don't believe he unleashed a grizzly on me by any means, but. God will do whatever it takes to get a hold of his son's hearts. Yes. And um, so in that moment, I I woke up and my dad was crying next to the bed. And uh, he ended up, uh, I, I sat up, I said, what's wrong, dad? He says, I thought, I thought I lost you today. And at that point, I said, no, dad, I'm here. I love you. And I put my arm around, I started holding, and he was just crying in my in my shoulder. And I'm saying, you were there, Dad. You showed me how to survive. You showed me how to prepare. You were there. Everything I was out there, you were there. And I was just, my heart was breaking because my dad's love just means everything to me. I pursued it all my life. And then all of a sudden, it changes and I pull back and I'm, I'm holding the Lord and the Lord is crying. And I have to admit the flash of anger came up because why did I have to go through all this? Why weren't you there? Don't you know how much that meant to me? And on top of that, while we're talking about it, why did you let my dad leave when I was eight and I was fighting it? And um, finally, just exhausted, I just fell in his arms 
just asking why. Mm. And um, he began to articulate in words every single detail of how he was there by my side out there when that grizzly was there through the escape, through the rescue and that he always loved me and that there was nothing that I needed to do to receive that love. And on top of that, that everything I had ever believed about my dad's love was a complete lie. Mm. So what he did was I was finally at a point ready to engage my heart is what it came down to. So I'm going to go to the very end of your book, and you address the men specifically who are reading the book. And I want to say, guys, this book, I read this book in a couple hours. It's a real easy read, and because of the events of the story, it's a very fast read because you're super engaged in it. But at the end of the book, you write this, Greg. You said, are you, like me, a man who's been shooting his arrows at the wrong target? Can you relate to the idea to being the best at whatever you do while having a nagging suspicion that what that what you reserve for God and your wife and children is leftovers? And then you said this, men, our families need us. So Greg, closing thoughts and comments to the men listening to our podcast. So this is really, really simple. There's nothing wrong with pursuing and achieving. We're all doing it. We've done incredible things. But what I will tell you is that until you engage your heart and you begin to, one, to bring out those wounds, the shame, and everybody, you don't have to feel like you are not isolated. Everybody has wounds and shame. All of that stuff, that is keeping you from being a full man. You have to engage that. And what I will tell you is whatever you've achieved in your life through your pursuits will pale in comparison to what, how you are feeling, how you are able to love, how you are able to be transparent, and how you are able to do what you are created to do. And it starts with just getting with another man and sharing those wounds that you've never shared with anybody else. Just be open and transparent, and that will pull you up off the battleground that will place your weapon back in your hands. You will be back in the fight, and you will be able to battle for your family. And that's what we need from men right now, Jim. Man, that is so powerful, Greg. I really appreciate this podcast. Uh, hey, and you, you know, I'm sure the title of this podcast grabbed your, you guys, but really, hopefully you're walking away going, man, there's something a lot deeper going on here. And half the book is, is Greg's personal journey and healing of his wounds. And so, hey, how can our guys get a hold of this book? What's the best source for them to pick it up? Well, that's just another blessing. I was actually <laughs> taken on by Simon & Schuster. And so, major publisher, it's wherever you can get books. It's Wild Awakening, How a Raging Grizzly Healed My Wounded Heart. And you can also, if you go to my website at chasewhatmatters.today, something will automatically pop up that you can click on. will take you to ordering my book. And the cool thing about that is what, what men want to see. I have a gallery in there that has all the, um, not during the attack, but all the images, if you want to see it, of what I look like afterwards. So it, it's, I'm, I'm telling you right now, if you pass out with blood, you probably should sit down. 
<laughs> yeah, and it, there are no pictures in the book, guys. So I'm just warning you, no pictures in the book. So a little teaser there. So, hey guys, uh, let's get our boots on the ground. What what's what do we do next, guys? What's the next action step? What are we going to do in response to this podcast? And and Greg, throughout the podcast, we talked about being a full man versus a shell of a man. And so, guys, here's your challenge. I want you to think of a guy right now that you trust, and I want you to unleash 60 seconds of courage upon that man. I want you to find a guy, if you haven't, most of you don't have this guy in your life. From what I've experienced, Greg, most guys don't have this guy. They haven't shared the 60 seconds of courage. So I want you to take 60 seconds, and I want you to unleash and unload your darkest, deepest secrets, wounds, garbage, baggage, whatever it is, you throw it, just don't think about it. You throw it out there, let it hang in the air. Just throw it out there and let it hang in the air. Let your buddy take it in. You just unload it and let it hang there. Guys, you're going to be shocked at what happens next. Hey, guys, we'll also post the Boots in the Ground action item on our weekly equipping blast that goes out to thousands of men all over this country. And, uh, guys, go to our website and subscribe to that. When you do so, we'll also give you a free electronic version of my 365-day bathroom book for men. Uh, Really works well with this book. A lot of hunting and fishing stories. So, guys, hey, we're a nonprofit crowdfunded organization that exists to help you to become your best version. And because of a large group of donors, we're able to offer our resources freely to active military, men in underdeveloped nations, and any of you missionaries out there, you can find out more how, uh, about how you can support this great organization at meninarena.org. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Battle the grizzly. Grind it out. And be a man. Men in the arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our Men in the Arena forums. You can join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. While you're on our website, remember to pick up your free electronic version of Jim's bathroom book for men, The Field Guide. It's a daily study of manly words with epic stories in the Bible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.